be seated. And now I'm going to turn the service over to a young man who needs no introduction. Hmm. Corey Gorinsky. Thank you. Good morning. Okay. Um, next up is to read from Scripture, but just open to page 822. We're going to get there. We'll get there. But before we begin today, before we pray, I want to start with a warning. By a show of hands, who here has ever been to SeaWorld? SeaWorld, anybody? SeaWorld, okay. So if you see a show such as like the Shamu show, I don't even know what it's called. Well, you know, Shamu's there. There's, there's a warning before the show starts. What is that warning? Okay, yeah, exactly. You're going to get wet. First five rows or whatever. So likewise, this sermon too is going to come for a warning for everybody who's present here. And the warning is this. And I'm serious here. I mean, when I was putting this together, it really spoke to me too. This sermon is going to feel, spiritually speaking, like a punch in the face. It's really going to hurt. But... This punch is needed. And it will be harder for some when compared to others. In other words, this sermon will speak to you, I guarantee that, in some way. It will be your wake-up call. The wake-up call you might not even be aware that you need. And the change required will be greater for some when compared to others. So here's the question we're going to answer. Is it right for a Christian to pursue the American dream? Living for the American American dream is so ingrained in each and every one of us that we may not even realize that we're living for it. Living the American dream affects the very foundation of why you get up every single day. It affects who you are. We Christians need to stop and take a look at the big picture of our lives. What are your goals? What are your dreams? What's your life's purpose? What does a successful life look like to you? How do you even define success? Now, are your answers rooted in Scripture or in the American dream? Because every single American Christian is affected by the worldview of the American dream, we American Christians have allowed our cultural preferences to manipulate the message of the gospel. All of us are guilty of doing this to some degree, and this is what we're going to explore today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this message um, we're about to go through, it's it's heavy on every single one of our hearts, and it's a change that needs to be done. But I pray, Father, that as, the, as your word is proclaimed, that I speak it clearly and I speak it correctly, as your word proclaims it to be. Soften every single one of our hearts here to, to be open to change, to be open to the change that you require out of every single one of us. No matter how hard it may be for us, may we see the eternal worth of it all. Prepare us in Jesus' name. Amen. But before we get started, I think we need to define what the American dream is. What is it? James Truslow Adams is responsible for coining the phrase American dream in 1931. He defined it as a dream in which each man and woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are capable and be recognized by others for what they are. So another way of saying it is that through hard work, courage, and determination, one can achieve a better life for oneself, usually through financial prosperity. In some way or another, the American dream has affected how you live out your life for Christ. 
But what's so bad about it? What's so bad about that definition? What's so bad about living that out? Let's break it down. On the surface, the American dream doesn't sound that bad. Let's look at the positives first before we get to the negatives. What are some of the positives real fast? It promotes hard work, which it does. It promotes freedom. And financially speaking, it teaches you, you you reap what you sow. And it promotes determination. Those are all good. But there is a dangerous assumption underlying this way of life that each of us can have and will accept if we are not careful about this. And what is that? It's that the greatest asset becomes us and our abilities. Our reliance becomes on ourselves and the amount of our financial gain. Selfishness is promoted, and the goal of living becomes to attain comfort, money, the approval of others, the envy of others. We live for the weekends, retirement, safety, to be able to afford a vacation. These goals consume our lives. We are so busy nowadays trying to achieve these goals that if you are not busy doing so, then you are doing something wrong. But ask yourself, what am I busy doing? What for? What's the goal? What's the purpose? And where is this teaching in the Bible? Let's look at how Scripture describes to us what the Christian life should look like. And let's not water it down. Let's not change its meaning, but let's apply the words of God just as they are written. So if you have your Bibles open, Matthew 16, 24 to 25. It is here that Jesus explains what it means to follow him. If you want to know what the life of a Christian should look like, here's the answer. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In the first century, crucifixion was one of the most feared ways of execution. It was used by the Romans to deter criminals from rebelling against the empire. The condemned would often be forced to carry their own cross to their site of execution. Now, obviously, we know this because this is exactly what Jesus went through, obviously for different reasons, though. But Jesus uses the cross and crucifixion to describe the image of what a believer's life should look like. What does this mean? Well, first, he says, we are to deny ourselves and take up our cross. It is from this passage that we have derived the saying, we all have our cross to bear. But this saying completely changes the true meaning of this passage. What was Jesus really trying to tell us? He was telling us in terms of death that we are to die to a whole way of life. We are all to die to the ways and lifestyle of the world. We are to be separated from its values and lifestyle. And ultimately, this means that we are to totally surrender all of ourselves, all of the time, to what God wants and not what we want. In verse 25, Jesus summarized the conclusion to what it means to follow him. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus isn't speaking about losing our physical lives, but rather he's speaking about what it truly means to have life, what it truly means to be alive. This person, the person who tries to hang on his own will and reject the will of God ultimately loses eternally 
all that he is attempting to pursue in his life. You want to live for the here and now. You want to live for what the world thinks is important. Or, or you want to live for money. You want to live for the approval of others, fame, material possession, your wants and your desires. Go ahead. That is your call to make. But be warned that you will ultimate, that ultimately this way of living and thinking will lead to the real loss of life. This way of thinking, this way of living, thriving for your values and the values of the world and the temporary mindset will result in you dying before you are physically dead. At this point, you're almost like a zombie. You're alive, but you're also dead. But if you want to have life, you must be willing to lose your life and replace it for what God desires. This is what it means to be a Christian, replacing our wants and our desires and rejecting the values of the world around us and willfully placing them, replacing them with the will of God. In fact, in Matthew 10, or, yeah, Matthew 10:38, Jesus says that whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. If you do not deny yourself and place God and his will as the number one priority in your life, then don't call yourself a Christian. I know that's hard to hear, but it's the truth. Being a Christian is a one-way journey. Much like the convicted who carries his own cross to his place of death, once you make the decision to follow Christ, don't turn back. And there is no turning back. To be worthy of Christ is to deny yourself fully and wholeheartedly live for him in full obedience. Jesus further emphasizes this point in Matthew 6:24, where he says, No one can serve two masters, for he, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You are a slave. It is either to God or to sin. You cannot serve both. Your devotion is either to one or the other. Not both. And if your master is God, if you're claiming God is your master, then you will long for, you will listen, you will obey him wholly and solely. Out of his love and his grace and his mercy, this is all God wants out of us. He desires for us to stop killing ourselves before our own time. God loves you and simply wants you not to die while you are still living. But to live, to call yourself a Christian, you must live as a Christian, not as we define it, not on our terms, but on his, not part-time, but full-time. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus walked on earth, and in that time, a lot of twisting of God's words have occurred, including a lot in our own time. Think about it. If someone would ask you what you have to do to be a Christian, what would you say? Not uncommon, and actually a popular answer would be something like, admit, believe, confess, and pray a prayer after me. That's it. No self-sacrifice is required in any way. No making God's will greater than ours. No denying ourselves. No taking up our cross. No, just simply say some words and believe. You're in. But where is that teaching in Scripture? What did we just read? What's the real answer? To be a Christian means you have to give up everything you have, carry a cross, and make serving and obeying God your number one priority. In other words, being a Christian is going to cost you. It's going to cost you your dreams, your plans, your wants, and your desires. All of these things will be swallowed up in His. Thus, we will die to self 
and live for Christ. Let me put it to you this way. If you are truly following Christ, then your life will not be a life of comfort. We American Christians, for some reason, think that if something is dangerous or risky, then it must not be God's will. Really? Is this true? Doesn't the Bible teach the complete opposite? Look in Acts and count the amount of times the, the disciples purposely put their lives at risk just for the sake of the gospel. I want to read an example from David Platt's book, Radical, to further this point. It's a short, brief example. He says, I met a Christian brother from the Batak tribe of northern Sumatra in Indonesia. He told me the story of how his tribe had come to know Christ. Years ago, a, ministry, a missionary couple had come to the village to share, his gospel, to share the gospel. The tribe was 100% Muslim. Talk about sheep in the middle of wolves. The tribal leaders, leaders captured this missionary couple, then murdered and cannibalized them. Years later, another missionary came to their tribe and again began sharing the gospel. The tribal leaders recognized that the story he told was exactly what the formal couple had shared. This time, they decided to listen. After they listened, they believed. Within a short time, the entire tribe was converted to Christ. This believer told me that today there are more than three million Christians among the Batak tribe of northern Sumatra. When I first heard this story, the immediate questions that came to my mind were, would I be willing for my wife and me to be the first missionary couple? Would I be willing to be killed and cannibalized so that those who come after me would see people come to Christ? Our comfort and security is not to be found in our finances, what they can afford, but rather our security and comfort is to be found in the sovereignty of God. And safety and comfort is actually not to be even sought after. Rather, serving God is to be our goal, whatever the cost may be. The point is that if you're living the Christian life as God defines it, then it will cost you. It will cost you time spent with others for the sake of spreading the gospel and living out the gospel. Time studying, time praying, money through tithing, health for serving others, friendships because you don't live like everybody else, um, family relationships, buying smaller house, uh, smaller cards, crappier clothing than you can actually afford because you want your money to go where you know God wants it to go. And it may even cost you your physical life. The key to understanding all that Jesus is telling us about what it means to be Christian is that Jesus is telling us from an untainted, clear, eternally minded perspective rather than from our twisted temporary mindset's perspective. Yes, you will suffer. It will cost you. But look at the big picture. We need to start truly living for Christ and truly start living, living for what we were originally designed to do, and that is to glorify God. Mark 12, 30-31, Jesus summarizes for us what it looks like to follow him. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Did you catch the word all in, in that statement? Jesus peppers the word there four times to emphasize the point that following after him involves all. All of us. And the following of these commandments will impact all the areas of our lives. Then, practically speaking, in 31, this dedication to God will naturally manifest itself 
by a show of love for, other, for others, just as Jesus' life demonstrated. So what does it mean to be a Christian as the Bible defines it to be? The answer is simply a full, willful devotion to God that replaces our wants and desires in favor for the greater and more important will of our loving God. This means that if you call yourself a Christian, it is not simply because you agree with what the Bible teaches. It is not because you are already a nice guy and you think the Bible teaches us to be nice guys. But rather, if you call yourself a Christian, make sure it is because you are devoted to God and to God alone. Thus, if you're a nice guy, you will be nice for the sake of the gospel, not in empty humility, not in self-promotion, but rather in the, but an eternal purpose is in mind. A command is being obeyed. A goal is in mind. A will is being satisfied, and that is the will of God. Now we have both terms defined, American dream and Christian. So do you see the obvious conclusion here? Christians cannot follow the American dream. We cannot call ourselves Christians while simultaneously living for money, for comfort, for self, and ultimately the here and now. But the problem is there's such a blending of these ways that we often mistake the American dream, that we often mistake American dream Christianity for true Christianity and what it looks like to follow Jesus. For example, when a church wants to become more successful in spreading the gospel, what do many do? They rely on methods. They rely on strategies. They rely on plans, and all of which require little, if any, dependent or involvement from God. In this American dream-infected church, what does a successful church look like? It's a good stage performance that pleases the crowds. It's a huge up-to-date building, complete with plasma TVs and Wi-Fi. And finally, some good programs to keep people coming back. But where is God? Why isn't he the reason why we come back? Why? It's because we need to be entertained 24-7. Comfort and pleasure have infected our faith and our community of believers. We need to recover a passion for him and obedience towards his word. Now, let's talk about money. Say after church you go to Giant Eagle and you run into someone you haven't seen since high school. And jokingly they ask you, if you're now rich, how many people would say yes? Well, I want to help you take off your blurred American lenses from your eyes and help you see the real-world scenario. If your household makes less than 22000 a year in the U.S., you're considered poor by the government. But if your household makes 22000 a year, then you're richer than 89% of the world. That means the American poor are in the top 11 of the, most, of the richest households in the whole entire world. But we don't see ourselves as rich because we're so blinded by this American dream way of thinking. Isn't it a hidden assumption among many American Christians that if we follow God, that he'll bless us financially? And that if, on the opposite side, if we lack faith or obedience, then we'll be financially poor? I don't want to get off topic on this, but I think the question we need to be asking ourselves is this. What are we doing with our money? Are we following him and his commands? By not becoming consumed by our finances, by not living for them? Or are we giving to, the, giving to the poor, purposely buying the downgrading cheaper versions of items so that we have more funds to give to what is really important, to what is eternally important, to what is pleasing to God? The question is, where are our priorities? In the church building or in the people? 
and gaining more for the purpose of achieving the American dream or purposely using our money to fulfill the commands of our loving master and to prevent ourselves from being consumed by this life-sucking game. Part of the problem as to why so many American Christians unknowingly have merged these two ideas is that we think God is here for us. Rather, the truth is we are here for him. We need God. God doesn't need us. Many believe that God is centered on us. After all, God loves us and has a beautiful plan for our lives. But the emphasis in Scripture is that we are enemies of God, and dead in our sins, and unable to save ourselves or do anything of any eternal worth apart from Him. The fact is, we need Him. Look at our dependence on Him. Even to save, even to see our need for Him, even to accept Him, He has to act. He has to open our eyes. He has to come to us. God is the object of our faith in our lives, not us. With this in mind, I think we all need to take a look at our lives, and in particular, in the foundational reason, reasons as to why we do what we do every single day. What is the object of your life, and how does it compare with what God says? Look at Matthew 6.33. Jesus says that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. First, accomplishing God's will and purpose is to be the reason why we get up every single morning. We are to want him so much that we abandon everything else to obey him and to experience him and to love him. It is eternally worth losing our lives as we have defined it for Christ's sake. Ultimately, ultimately a life not lived for Christ is no life at all anyway. Forget comfort, forget financial gain, forget living for money, forget time off, and live for God. Have an eternal mindset. There's a true story about some American Christians who knowingly went into an AIDS-infested community in South Africa simply to share the gospel and then to help them out medically. Well, it happened. One of the Christians was accidentally stuck with an AIDS-infected needle. At least they thought it was AIDS-infected. And what was their response after being struck with this needle, before they knew whether or not it had AIDS on it? They responded by saying, if the clinics were used by God to lead someone to Christ, then it was all worth it. Do you see the eternal mindset in that person? That's a Christian mindset. We do have to give up everything to follow Jesus, but we don't want to believe it. So we rationalize passage of Scripture away by saying what Jesus really meant was... At this point, we are twisting our own Creator's words and redefining Christianity by molding Jesus into our image. What it comes down to is that we all have a choice to make. Live for Christ as He defines it, or live for the world. If we do not do this, if we choose to throw out what Jesus wants us to do, what it means to really be a Christian, the cost is great, not only for you, as you will lose your life, but also for others. By living for the American dream instead of fully obeying Jesus, we are literally keeping billions of souls from hearing and accepting the message of salvation. Believe it or not, there are more important things in life than watching football or doing home improvement or cleaning or planning for retirement. These things are utterly meaningless in the grand scheme of things. We need to wake up and start truly living. We need to realize that there is no plan B to save souls. We, that's you and me, are the only instruments God uses to spread the message of the gospel. How do we do this? 
by abandoning ourselves and breaking away from the deadly poison that is American dream-infected Christianity. But how do we do this? How do we begin to wean ourselves away from thinking and living this way since it's so ingrained in us? How do we get our lives and our faith to be where God always called it to be? Before we look at the practical steps, let's first look at the same questions I asked at the beginning of the sermon. But this time, now knowing what we just looked at, have your answers changed at all? The questions were, what are your dreams and goals? What's your life's purpose? What does a successful life look like to you? How do you define success? Also, where is your focus? What are your priorities in daily life? What matters most? Now let's take some time and look at some practical ways each of us can take in order to begin by shaking off the American dream mentality away from our faith. First of all, I believe that you begin with prayer. Set aside a specific time, preferably first thing in the morning, and set aside a specific place each day to pray to God. Not only this, but you want to start off by praying for five minutes straight, then ten minutes straight, then fifteen minutes straight, then twenty minutes straight, and it goes greater and greater. When was the last time you prayed to God for five minutes straight? Have you even ever prayed to God for five minutes straight? Many of you have not, and this needs to change if we truly desire to make living for God and God alone the sole priority of our lives. Praying to God should be, or should not be, an afterthought in our daily activities, but rather it should be a priority. Secondly, we need to read daily, and specifically we need to read God's Word. Come up with a reading plan. Rotate between reading an Old Testament chapter one day and the next day reading a New Testament chapter. So the first two steps are very simple. Pray and read, pray and read. How many times have you been told this? How many times have you heard this? But we need to ask ourselves, how many times have we done this? If we want to serve God the way he wants us to, if we truly want to live for him and him alone, we need to faithfully practice these foundational relational practices that bring us closer to our loving God. Thirdly, we need to tithe. Since much of the American dream forces us to become more attached to our possessions and our money, we need to give it up. We need to give it to God. And much like our prayer time, this too is not to be an afterthought, but rather we are to give our first fruits to him. Fourthly, we need to get ourselves outside of our comfort, comfortable context for spreading the gospel and living, and living out the gospel. We need to realize that this life is not meant to be spent on a lazy boy, but rather we need to make sure that we are doing everything to please our master. So let's leave our homes and go to our neighbors, get involved in a ministry, start a ministry, just do good works in his name without even calling it a ministry. Don't let your stubborn ways and your wants and your desires stop you from obeying God's commands and his desires and his wants. Don't wait for something to come around, but rather purposely leave your comfort zone consistently for the sake of the gospel. Fifthly and finally, we need to commit our lives to God's people, and that's the church. The fact is, we can't do this alone. One of the poisons of the American dream mentality is, is that of individualism. I, 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 me, me, me. But this is not found in our faith. Rather, it's we, we, we. All the way home. <laughs> we need... We need to lean on each other, contact one another, support one another spiritually, financially, and emotionally. Again, this is going to cost you in some way. 
But our love for one another must manifest itself in, through our faith. It is the, this is the foundation that the church was established on by Christ. And we must maintain that. Otherwise, we will likely be swallowed up some way or another by the, by the American dream mentality again. If you are like me, these changes sound very hard. And it's going to be. So in order to help me personally stay turning the minded, I've compiled a list of, of these steps into something that I call my spiritual growth plan or, or a spiritual workout. Me personally, I feel like if I really want to make living God the number one priority in my life, I need to have a purposeful and consistent plan that is my top priority every single day. And that's what actually fell earlier. I can't see it, obviously, but I just made out a little chart. It has five days of the week. You don't have to do this. This is just me personally. Five days of the week, and I have um, some, um, what I call, I call this my part of sanctification. It starts off with prayer. Every single day I pray. Every single day I read, and I do the rotating Old Testament and New Testament. I read a devotional email five days a week. Um, and that's, every, that's, that's foundational. That's how I start every day. And then three days a week I'll do a chapter of a theological book, and then two days a week I'll do a journal entry, one day a week I'll fast, two days a week I'll do a bodily workout just to keep my mind fresh, um, special place for prayer once a month just to be alone with God for uh, X amount of time, Bible study with my wife, um, growth groups, and evangelize, share my faith with one person each week. And gradually these times will increase and the amount that I read will increase, but the point is that you have something in place where it's not just something abstract that you, if you have got time, you do it, but you purposely do it every single day. You start off every single day looking at this and see, say, what do I need to do? Can I add to it? And this becomes one of the reasons why you get up and it, and it draws you closer to God. And the point is that we need to be devoted to God and not to ourselves. And we need to be patient with him and with ourselves. These changes are not going to occur overnight. The American dream mentality is deeply seated in us all. This trading of the American dream for full obedience to God means that we abandon everything for his sake. Can you do that? Do you want to just get into heaven, or do you live out your faith as if you long to hear the words from your creator, well done, my good and faithful servant? So I encourage every single one of you to abandon everything for him simply because he's worth it. Find true life. Don't be duped by the American dream mentality any longer. Break away from it by setting up practical steps that further your personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Maintain an eternal mindset. Live a Christian life as the Bible defines it and not how we define it. What it comes down to is this. Christ loves us all. Some, if not all of us here, are feeling very guilty right now. Guilty for twisting our faith and letting the American dream mentality affect our personal relationship with Christ and the way in which we live it out. But let me just remind you not to let this guilt fester. Change now and don't wait. God wants us to yearn for him with all of our hearts, not to fester in guilt. Forgiveness is found in Christ and Christ alone. Confess to him and repent. It's not too late. It is my prayer that each and every single one of our lives become utterly drenched with one goal in mind, and that, and that is to obey God and live out the gospel. So let's apply these practical steps, which are drenched in a close relationship with God, and turn our tainted faith into pure devotion to him. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, this is a hard message to swallow. It's a hard message to apply, but it's been the same message um, since the beginning of uh, your ministry, Lord Jesus. But how we have twisted it and how we have adapted it to our culture, we just flat out twisted your words. But the truth is you require all of us, not some of us, but all of us. Help us to redefine what Christianity is as you define it, which is the only definition, which has been the only definition of it, but how we have twisted it. Lord, I pray that you be with every single one of us to help us to make these practical steps, to bring us closer to you, to help us to truly start living the Christian life as you define it. May our lives every single day be consumed with serving you, by drawing closer to you, by reading, by praying, by serving others, that the communities may grow and know you, that we will get out of our comfort zones and purposely live for you, that our lives will not be consumed in just going to work and coming home and sitting at home watching TV and redoing the whole entire process all over again. Help us to live our lives for you. And, Father, I I fear that a lot of us don't believe that you're there, that you're paying attention to us, that you can do what you say you can do. But, Father, prove us all wrong. Creating us a desire for you and a desire to see your salvation, the message of your salvation, go out. But, Lord, that needs to be done through us. So I pray, Lord, that you mold us and shape us into what you want us to be. Help us to do our part by searching after you and following after you instead of waiting for you to do something for us. May we long for you and run to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.